Good morning. Take your Bible and go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 14, the end of chapter 14, verse 24. Acts 14, verse 24. Let's read. Then they passed through Poseidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Um, This morning, the title of our message is the church business meeting that went well and actually accomplished something. Um, We'll get into that a little bit more in just a moment. Uh, uh, In 1937, there was a German lieutenant colonel named Erwin Rommel. He published a book from his World War I experiences on infantry fighting. Uh, The name of the book was called Infantry Attacks. Um, And in it, what he did was he discussed different strategies and um, most effective ways of commanding infantry uh, in battle. This is the same Erwin Rommel that would become the field marshal for Nazi Germany during World War II. Um, And his book uh, became a respected military textbook um, very quickly, not just in Germany, but in other places as well. And even commanders like uh, Patton supposedly read it, and it was passed out to different allied commanders. Um, Ultimately, what happened during World War II is some of these armor commanders of the allies ended up using some of uh, Rummel's own uh, recommendations and strategies against him. Um, Because after all, they had access to his strategies. Now, of course, he didn't do everything by the book, but they had access to some of the ways that he thought and the same, some of the ways that he strategized. Um, So here in Acts 15, there's a ton of momentum in the mission to the Gentiles now. We've seen um, uh, Peter, who was by God to be the one that would, uh, that evangelized the first Uh, Gentiles that received the Holy Spirit. And in chapters 13 through 14, uh, it records what's called uh, Paul's first missionary journey, which was a mission that was unashamedly outside of the land of Palestine and um, which heavily included Gentiles. And so Paul and Barnabas made their trip and they looped back eventually to their home in Antioch. Um, here in chapter 15, like I said, there's a lot of momentum in this Gentile mission, lots of great stuff happening, but the church is going to feel an attack. Um, they're going to be an object, the object of another attack that they don't necessarily see coming. Um, local churches, even today, fall under attack from the evil one, Right? But we have a wartime guide that helps us and tells us very much about the the enemy. 
the, the, the theme of Acts is that the gospel goes into the whole world. It starts in Jerusalem in this one little upper room, and immediately from that upper room, the, the Holy Spirit um, takes those believers outside of the room, and the gospel starts spreading. Um, and eventually in Acts, you'll get to, to them what is the, the end of the world, geographically, that is. Um, so Paul and Barnabas, they make this trip predominantly to Gentiles on their first missionary journey. Um, and when they get back to Antioch, which is kind of their, their home base, their home church that they've been sent out of, there's a lot of concern because while they are gone, there's been this false teaching that has cropped up coming from specific teachers that are from Judea. And they are telling the Gentiles that, yes, uh, it's great that you've embraced Jesus as you recognize Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and your Savior, but uh, you need to also be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law. And so this creates a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, concern uh, in the, the church there at Antioch, but also in other churches in, in the region. Um, and on top of that, these teachers were claiming an authority from Jerusalem, claiming to have been from, sent by James, who was the half-brother of our Lord, who had risen in a lot of influence within the, the church there in Jerusalem. Now, we're going to see that they were falsely claiming to, be, to have been sent by James. But nonetheless, this causes a lot of uh, concern. All right, so in our text this morning, uh, we're just going to walk through, through this, and our major uh, points here are just going to be kind of sections of the narrative. So first of all, we see the problem. Okay, the problem in verse 1 is here, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, these, these teachers, they're pretty committed because this is not just uh, hop in your car, drive over to Roanoke type of thing. This is a 300-mile journey, um, which takes a good, uh, a good while uh, to make this, this trip from Jerusalem to, to north to Antioch. Um, but this is going to be a doctrinal uh, disagreement of major, major significance. Um, historically and theo theologically, this passage that we're looking at this morning is a hinge event. It's something that is a big deal in the history of the church. And even in the way it sits literarily in Acts, it's in the middle of the book of Acts. Um, and so this is a hinge, hinge event in a lot of ways this morning, and it's set up that way for us. Um, and so the emphasis for them is that you have to be circumcised. Why such the emphasis on circumcision? Well, they're emphasizing circumcision because circumcision was like an initiation ritual into uh, the, the covenant of, of Israel and into the community of Israel. And so this, this ritual of uh, circumcision, once someone was converted to Judaism, because Gentiles, even in the Old Testament, they would be converted to Judaism. They would have to be circumcised, obey the Mosaic law. Um, but it was a way of showing submission to God and submission really into the in entire law and in this initial uh, initiation. 
So, but circumcision is just going to be the, the surface issue here. What they're really wanting is to impose the entire Mosaic law. That's what they're, they're getting after. Now, this church in Antioch, we've already seen, like, there's been a lot of love. There's been a lot of unity when they found out that the church in Jerusalem was going to struggle during the famine. They sent this love offering to them to help support them. And within a Gentile Jew mixed church, there had been a lot of unity up to this point until these knuckleheads from Jerusalem show up and start teaching what they're, they're, they're teaching. And no, make no mistake about it, this, again, this is a big deal because doctrinal defections, which is what they were teaching, doctrinal defections and internal fracturing have always been greater threats to the church than outward opposition. And so they're teaching here, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And immediately, we, we should be like, excuse me? <laughs> unless, dash, 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 you cannot be saved? Well, let's call this what this is here in Acts chapter 15. This is an effort by Satan to infiltrate the church. What Satan can't do through blatant opposition, he will attempt to do through wolves and goats. This is probably chronologically where we find the book of Galatians being written, around 48 AD. Uh, This is probably that, that context. Right prior, when Paul and Barnabas have come to Antioch, and prior to, um, prior to, uh, Going to the Jerusalem Council, Paul writes this letter to the churches in the region of southern Galatia, dealing with specifically the issue of circumcision, but in wider uh, uh, the issue of legalism in general. All right, verse 2, it says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Um, Paul and Barnabas don't just coexist with this false teaching that's going on um, because they realize there can be no compromise when it comes to things that God has clearly revealed. Yes, there might be disagreement, but God has revealed it. And when God has revealed something in such a clear manner, we can't compromise on those things. Verse 3, it says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia, where, which would have been predominantly Gentile, and Samaria, which is predominantly Samaritan. And they were describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Verse 4, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here is the problem. You have this uh, extra-biblical information that is being passed on uh, to these Gentile believers. And what is the, the heart of the problem is, do, are, are Gentiles going to have to become Jews in order to come into this new Christian community? 
Are they going to have to observe the works of the law or works in general in order to be part of this Christian community and to be right before God? Um, And so when they get to Jerusalem, there are some there that might be different from the, the teachers that were actually at Antioch. But whoever they are, they are sympathetic to what these other teachers had been teaching in Antioch. And so they wanted to have lots of conversation. And specifically, what they're wanting to do is to suppress these new Gentile believers and put them under the yoke of the law. Now, this is cult-like in what is happening. Because in that cult leaders, cultists, they want to micromanage the Gentiles. And any time, that is cult-like behavior, wanting to micromanage someone. Uh, Legalists have this mindset that they're the ideal believers, right? And that's what's going on here. Um, And if you look at Acts chapter 15, uh, with the older brother and the the issue of um, the father running out to help him, what, what happens? The, the older brother, in bitterness and resentment, says, well, I never even got a goat. I never did all these things like my younger brother. That's because the legalists, the Pharisee, tends to see himself as the ideal believer. So you have the problem in verses 1 through 5, but secondly, you have the debate in verses 6 through 18. Verse 6 says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What what Peter is referring to here uh, is something, this event that happened with Cornelius, is probably something that happened about 15 years ago before this. Now, for us, that only happened a few chapters uh, ago. But remember, uh, Luke is condensing all this information, all these events in the early church. And, and so this is something that probably happened about 15 years ago. Um, verse 8 says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, God had already, Peter is saying, look, God has already given his testimony about uh, the Gentile believers. Because when the Gentiles believe, what happened? They, they were given the Holy Spirit. And by giving the Gentiles the Holy Spirit, God is already giving his testimony to the matter. Verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter says, why are you trying to test God? Don't test God's patience. We as parents are, uh, I don't know if you ever get used to that, um, where your kids, maybe they're sticking their finger right beside your, your face. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Um, this is kind of what's happening with these, Peter says, with these. why would you try to test God's patience with something that he has already revealed? Um, he also says, uh, 
the way that they're trying to do this is by placing a yoke on the neck of these believers that neither our fathers or we have been able to bear. Here's a picture of a yoke. It's something that's put on an oxen, maybe a pair of oxen, maybe one, in order to direct them and control them better. A yoke came to give the imagery of burden, right? A heavy burden. And Peter says, why would we take something that our fathers could not handle and something that even we are struggling with and place that on these Gentile believers. And Peter is implying, he's including himself too, but he's implying to these legalists that they haven't successfully borne the weight of the law either. And so why are you going to try to put that on other folks as well? So in this debate that's going on at what is called the Jerusalem Council or this, this, this meeting here, you have three people that speak up. First you have Peter and then you're going to have uh, Barnabas and Paul. And then you're going to have James speak up. But here, Peter is speaking. He has this threefold argument. First of all, God chose to include the Gentiles. All right? God chose to include the Gentiles. Secondly, God gave them the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, the Mosaic Law is a proven yoke. All of these things, we can see God's activity. This is what uh, Peter is arguing. All right? But the, the, the conversation isn't over, but uh, what Peter has said has definitely been um, compelling to people that are in the room. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so Barnabas and Paul speak up and they start talking about their experiences that they've just experienced on this missionary journey through Gentile territory. Remember when, when Paul was at, uh, at Lystra and they stoned him for dead and he just gets up and walks back into the city, a miraculous event, uh, a miraculous helping from the Lord. And then you saw other miracles. And so Barnabas and Paul, their reason for talking about these signs and wonders that happened is that, look, God was on board with what was happening. God was vindicating his message, which is what God has done all through Acts. When you see these significant signs and miracles, it's to vindicate the message that is being spoken. All right, and then thirdly, Barnabas and, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, James speaks up. In verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Again, this is James, the half-brother of, of the Lord, the same James that wrote uh, the epistle of James towards the end of our New Testament. Verse 14, he says, Simeon, it's another name for Peter here, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So James, what he's fixing to do is he's going to quote from Amos chapter 9. All right? But he's making a reference to the collaborative teaching of all the prophets, not just Amos. So while he is, and part of this quotation is heavy on paraphrasing, uh, James doesn't say that, ain't, that this is fulfilling James chapter 9, because he's referencing again the prophets, plural, not just one prophet, not just one, uh, not just one proof text from the Old Testament. But what he says is that the prophets 
uh, harmonize, are in harmony with what God is doing right now. James says, what we are seeing right now, this harmonizes, uh, it agrees with what the prophets taught all along. And James is just quoting one example of that. Uh, we could look at Isaiah 42, 6, Isaiah 60, verse 3, Malachi 1, verse 11, which all, which all include the idea of salvation for Gentiles. So here's this quote from Amos 9 and 16 and 17. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. The point here, or what he is using or showing in this quote, is that the, the Gentiles were going to be included in the kingdom. Okay, that's the context of Isaiah 9, that after uh, after the restoration of Israel, that Gentiles would be included in that, that kingdom. Now, we could look at this quotation here, and this is a favorite quotation to study by theologians and, and exegetes or whatever, and we could study this little quote to death. But the point of it is that the prophets foresaw Gentile salvation. And Gentile inclusion in salvation should have been on everybody's radar. This shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone because if we go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis, um, it spoke of how uh, Abraham would be a blessing to the Gentiles and how his people, his seed would be a, a blessing to the Gentiles. All right, so you have the problem, you have the debate, um, you have the decision here in verse 19. And James, he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, James is not speaking here as like a pope figure or just the, the one central figure. He's speaking like a spokesman here, okay? He's uh, evaluating and summarizing everything that has, has gone on. So like in our meetings sometimes here at the church, I'm kind of famous for like, so what we're saying is this, right? Just because... I don't always follow along. But to be clear, um, like, so we're saying this, right? And that's kind of what James is doing. He's summarizing. He's being a spokesman for the rest of the, the group here. Um, and he says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. When you become a member of the body of Christ, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, boy, girl, whatever, you have full, equal footing as a part of Christ's church. As Christ's beloved, you are on equal footing. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Certainly what the, what the leaders here in Jerusalem see here is echoing those words, that, that spirit of Jesus that we're supposed to be taking the burden off of people, not adding things. Later, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul would make a very clear statement when he said, the saying in trust, the, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus 
came into the world to save sinners. And so this decision, this conclusion uh, by the early church follows in that spirit that, that, of what Jesus taught. Verse 20 says, um, we shouldn't trouble them, but verse 20 says, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that that, that has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So while they're not supposed to keep, they don't have to keep circumcision, there are four uh, qualifiers or four um, exhortations that they are going to communicate to these new Gentile believers. Now, we look at them, and what, what four are they? They are to abstain from things polluted by idols, which would be abstaining from probably meat that had been offered in these pagan uh, temples, and then that was sold at a very huge discount out at, out at the market. Now, why would they abstain from that? Because it's already been sanctified to uh, Aphrodite or Diana or, or whatever. No, that wasn't really the point. The point was that here are these Jews, and then, then even other Gentiles, Jews, um, for the sake of the assembly, for the sake of fellowship, the Gentiles were to, supposed to be conscious of not offending their brothers. Okay? Um, Abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. This one is more generic. Uh, the word is porneia, which is a common generic term for a lot of sexual sins. Anything outside the realms of marriage. And from what has been strangled. Um, so what that means is that for a cow or a chicken or something that had been butchered, um, it, if it had not drained, if they had not drained all of the blood prior, they were supposed to abstain from that. Because in the Jewish mindset, they learned from the law that the principle of life is in, in the blood, and that the, the blood was a, a significant thing. And they had um, lived with that for almost millennia up to this point. And so, is it a sin to eat uh, a raw steak now? No, it's not a sin to do that, because what he's talking about here is an area of trying to foster fellowship amongst other believers that might have a guilty conscience in something like that. Now, how do we know that? Because this is what Paul is going to say later, later in his letters in 1 Corinthians and then in Romans chapter 14. Like, there are some gray areas in our Christian lives that depending on our backgrounds, uh, depending upon our consciences, that can possibly be a sin or a stumbling block for someone else and maybe not for another believer. Now, we're not talking about things that are explicitly spelled out in Scripture. Those are sins for everybody. But there is this thing called individual soul liberty that we believe in and that the Bible teaches, um, specifically from the, the pen of, of Paul. And what else? And from, and from blood. That is, they weren't supposed to be part of... Uh, it, it could be that the pagans were used to making like blood pudding that actually included 
uh, actual blood mixed in or other recipes or whatever. And so the Gentiles were supposed to abstain from that as well. And uh, these things are, uh, some of these things, they are situational because of the Jew-Gentile dynamic that is within the church in Antioch and within the early church in general. Because usually when Paul and Barnabas went into a new city, where did they go first? They went to the synagogues. That's where there are religious-minded people um, that are possibly more open. Then as God opened up other opportunities, as we see later in Acts, you see uh, Paul on, on Mars Hill and in other, other places. As God opened those opportunities, they would preach there as well. So there was a, this mixture of Jews and Gentiles all over the place in the early church. But these prohibitions that are given here are for, um, they are significantly about fellowship based on separation from paganism. All right, verse 22. Now we see the letter uh, that they're going to, to write and send to these churches. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Notice there's three groups that are mentioned here. Um, there are uh, the apostles, which the apostles were the ones that had ministered with Jesus, had been sovereignly called by Jesus, including Paul. Um, we don't have any more apostles today. Now, some like to throw their, their name out there, call themselves apostles. There are no technical apostles still today. Okay? Um, that was something that was a gift for the early church that we still benefit from today, but there are no apostles. We might apply that in that there are people with like a trailblazing mentality that are super good at maybe planting churches or evangelism with a pioneering type spirit, but technically speaking, there are no apostles today. But the second in the group are the elders. Those are the leaders at the church of Jerusalem. And then thirdly, you have the whole church. So this is not just a decision that is being made by the apostles, although they could have. And it's not just a decision being uh, made by the elders. It's all three of these together, the apostles, the elders, and the, the whole church. Because the way it should work is that elders are empowered to make a lot of decisions by the church. But when it comes to big, significant things, we're all in this together, and the elders can't necessarily speak for the entirety of the church, which is why we vote on things like a budget, accruing debt, taking on new pastor elders, um, those, those kind of things. Um, because the church is an important thing, which is why we would call ourselves here the way we are structured at Hope Valley. We are elder-led, but congregational-ruled, I guess, um, where the elders are empowered to act by the congregation. Verse 23, or the end of verse 22, it says, They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Here's the content of the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. He said, 
We know that this has happened. We don't know where they came from. They didn't come from us. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Now you notice in the letter, the order of those four prohibitions are switched up a little bit. Probably that's because they are basing this on information uh, and how it is laid out in Leviticus 16 and 17. So this letter is given, and there, notice, I mean, there's an expectation communicated. Like, no, you don't have to, you don't have to become Jewish, but you can't stay pagan either. Verse 30 through 35, we have the reception of the letter. It says, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So when they get this letter, it's read out loud, and they're encouraged by it. Because it clears up a lot of their confusion. And what we have here when we get to 30 and 35 is the early church has successfully navigated this issue that could have been uh, very damaging for the church as a whole. And so we get to verse 30 and 35 and we can breathe a breath of fresh air because this satanic attack has been uh, averted And I do believe that this is indeed a satanic attack. We get insight from some of Paul's letters of, of how we are not, uh, uh, our enemies are not flesh and blood. But there's this organized system of spiritual beings that uh, try to oppose God and try to oppose believers. Those are the ones that we war against. But this strategy that Satan uses, it's not a new strategy. It's very much a hath God said strategy. Just like Satan or the serpent used in the Garden of Eden. Eve says, well, God said not to, to eat of the fruit or to touch it. And what is the serpent's reply? Hath God said and even in the temptation of, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, when it's showing the ethical qualifications of Christ as the, the king, as the Messiah, um, and he successfully uh, avoids all of the temptations of Satan. What is, what is Satan's strategy there? It's taking the word of God and twisting it and asking, hath God said and that is exactly what's going on here for the early church. 
God has revealed things through the Old Testament, through the prophets, but through, obviously, the, the Logos, through Christ himself and the preaching here of the apostles, empowered, given, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the strategy that Satan is using is, hath God said? Hath God said? Here's our main point this morning. It is a settled fact that salvation is by grace through faith apart from the law. It is an established, settled fact. And that is the word of the Lord, period. It's settled in heaven. It was settled by the early church. Settle it in your heart. Salvation is by grace through faith apart from works of the law. Now, there are groups that don't embrace this. Judaism, which rejects Christ as their Messiah. They obviously believe in keeping in the law to a certain extent. Seventh-day Adventists are very uh, uh, syncretistic in, in bringing the law along with them with dietary restrictions and uh, Sabbath uh, observation. But notice, as we go through the New Testament, it's not just that salvation is by grace through faith apart from the law, but it's, it's apart from the principle of works altogether. Yes, James says that faith without works is dead. That is, there is going to be an evidence. There's going to be a fruit of real salvation. But the overwhelming, the teaching... Uh, in the New Testament is that salvation is by grace through faith. God has done all the work and we receive it through faith. Apart, not just from the law, but apart from the principle of works righteousness altogether. But that doesn't stop many folks um, from holding the superstitious belief that you have to contribute good works to secure your salvation. For them, it's faith plus whatever. Faith plus uh, communion. Faith plus baptism. Faith plus church membership. Faith plus speaking in tongues. Faith plus certain denominational affiliation. Faith plus King James Bible. Faith plus all of these things. But no, it is a settled fact and something that the church cannot compromise. It's been decided in heaven. It was decided by the early church. Salvation is by grace, get grace through faith. The work and merit of Christ is enough. The work and merit of Christ is enough. And all we must do is turn to Him. Change our minds our, our insufficient thoughts of who He was, who He is, and all that goes along with that, our sin, our rebellion, be converted in our minds and our hearts and turn to who Christ really is, the Son of God. And the Son of God came down from heaven. He went and He died a criminal's death in our place. And if it was faith plus something, that means Christ's death would have been insufficient. But three days later, God raised him from the dead, showing that it was sufficient. And that we cast all of our faith and our trust on him.
we bow your heads and close your eyes? Worship team's coming forward. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never done that before. You've never, there's not a conscious time in your life where you said, I'm, I'm repenting of my false beliefs about Jesus or my false beliefs about what I have to do to secure my salvation or appease God or uh, please Him. Maybe you've never had that time before in your life where you've just cast your faith and trust in Jesus. And I'm calling on you to do that this morning, right now, as the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart where you're sitting. Maybe it is, maybe some of that fast heartbeat, that uncomfortable nature that you have right now is just that the holy spirit has convicted you that you are a sinner in rebellion against god and if something if that does not change your destination will be a place called hell apart from the face of jesus himself and so this morning what i'm calling on you to do if god's working in your heart convicting you of sin revealing to you this truth is to put your faith and trust in jesus You don't have to pray a certain prayer. It could be something like this. You you should pray, but it's not the prayer that saves you. It's, It's Jesus that saves you and putting your faith and trust in him. And so where you're at, you can just say, God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I take personal responsibility for it. I have chosen sin. But this morning, God, I recognize that you sent Christ to be my savior. And I believe that. I believe what you have said about that. And I believe in him. And I want, I want him to be my savior. I am putting my faith and trust in him. It can be something simple like that. It's, again, it's not the prayer. It's not the words that save you. It's Jesus that saves you. Believing and trusting in him. And to the rest, the rest of us, to the church as a whole, our local church, we have to have a a commitment to what God's word has said, a commitment to submit ourselves under the authority of God's word, under the authority of what scripture has said. And that can look different for for each of us because we all have different things going on in our lives. But the call this morning is to submit to the authority of God's word. Father, thank you for salvation that is provided in Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, we, we look inward and at our sin and our inconsistencies and our weaknesses, and there's only despair. But that's why, Lord, that we, we choose to look on your glory, the glory of the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, and the glory of your gospel work. Lord, thank you that he went to that cross to die in our sin, to die in our to die for our sin, to die in our place. Thank you that he experienced the wrath that we deserved. Thank you that he took it away to the grave. Thank you that he rose from that grave. He wasn't forsaken, but he is victorious, risen Lord who 
who sits in glory at your right hand. And we anticipate the day that he returns. Lord, thank you for all of these truths. And we, so we look outside of ourselves and we are encouraged by what you have done on our behalf. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? Stand to your feet. The worship team is going to lead us. We use this time as a time of invitation. God is doing something in your heart, and you need to do business with him. You can come forward. We'll, we're, we'd love to pray with you, discuss anything that's going on uh, in your life, in your mind, in your heart. Um, but you can also pray and do business with God where you're at. So whatever that needs to look like for you, um, do that business with God right now.